Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game and doesn't have time to mention bloody stupid pointless who asked for it in the first place, VAR and handball rules. Uh, I'm Kevin Day and he is Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Hello Kieran, how are you? Uh, blood, blood's still boiling. I'm trying to forget <laughs> about football, trying to uh, pretend it doesn't exist. But uh, sadly, uh, I suspect I won't be able to get away with that for the next 45 minutes at least. Yeah, sadly, as is the way of the world, I was I was still laughing at your uh, misfortune when our misfortune happened, and then that, that, I was furious about our misfortune, and still don't care about yours. Uh, but so, before we get into questions from listeners, Kieran, uh, all of which next week will be about VAR, I imagine, we do have some news to discuss. And it's mainly about takeovers and da, 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 good news for Charlton Athletic fans. Yes, yeah, I mean, we, we've been covering uh, the Charlton story on a regular basis on the show. Um, somebody from the, the Charlton, Charlton Athletic Supporters Trust was actually going to come on the show today. But they've still not sobered up, so <laughs> therefore we put it back to Thursday. Um, so uh, yeah, so on on Friday, everybody was was staggered that uh, that Thomas Sandgard, who is the uh, potential American investor who has passed the owners and directors test, uh, he announced that he has bought the football club from East Street Investments. Now you might be saying to yourself, "Well, hold on." Wasn't there an injunction yeah. in respect of East Street Investments? Um, and this is where our silver-tongued friends in the legal profession, hat, hats are doffed, Kevin. They are doffed. Hmm. The reason for that is that he didn't buy East Street Investments. He got East Street Investments to sell him the football club rather than the company itself. So he sort of weaseled in between. Um, so he's bought the assets. He's uh, he signed a 15-year lease with Roland de Chachelet for, for the Valley and the training ground. So we've got some certainty going forwards with respect on that. Um, by all accounts, the EFL have lifted the transfer embargo, according to Lee Boyer. Mm. Um, so, so that means that they've still got a wee bit of time to start planning uh, a few more things. Uh, the, the other party, the guy who has uh, put through the injunction Paul Elliott, who failed the owners and directors test, according to him, due to an administrative issue, mm. just, just a minor issue. Um, he, he, he has been asked for comments and uh, he's not answering his phone. What, this is what I don't understand, Kieran. I, I know your hat is, is doffed. Your, your hat is semi-doffed all the time, Kieran, to be honest, to the, the silver tongue lawyers. But I, I still don't quite understand. I mean, I'm delighted for Charlton fans, obviously, which is not a sentence I often, often get to use. But I still don't quite understand how, just days after Paul Elliott took this injunction to say, no one else is buying this club, it's my club, I want this club, please let me have this club. And suddenly... It's not his club anymore. I mean, I mean, it was lovely to see the the open letter from the new the, the new owner to the fans talking about a fresh start, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and getting them involved. But it it does seem very strange that Elliot went to this when I presume taking an injunction is very expensive, and it, it does make you wonder why suddenly the the path has suddenly been cleared. Well, he, he took out an injunction to prevent the the current owners or the previous owners is, is now of uh, East Street Investments selling East Street Investments to Thomas Sangard. Right. So, so they so they they weren't able to sell the company, but the company itself owns some stuff. So it's a bit like uh, uh, you know me uh, 
me, me not being able to sell you my house because right. I own my house through a company, but the, um, the, the they we, we use another vehicle through which to sell it, and that's how they that's how they went through it. So it was uh, uh, it, it was it was an amazing sleight of hand, but uh, perfectly within the law. So I haven't bought your house, but I have bought all the rooms. Is that that's right? Yep. So d- d- makes you think then that Paul Elliott's not going to go away, doesn't it? I mean, it's you, much as you want this to be the final word, you suspect that it's not going to be. Um, yeah, I mean, he he has a lawyer uh, based in Cheshire who, uh, who who the who the Charlton fans, I believe, a few weeks ago paid a visit. I say no <laughs> more than that. Um, in in proper South London style, uh, and you and I both know what that involves. Um, and uh, they they seemed quite confident at the time that uh, Paul Elliott would, would, in due course, pass the uh, uh, owners and directors test and get to own the club. And Paul Elliott appears to be mainly uh, based with properties, so so you always get a little bit uh, concerned as as to motives. But uh, this seems to have gone through. Um, Thomas Sangard has said that he has. And this is something we, we've suggested on the podcast quite a few occasions. Anybody that owns a club comes in and effectively puts down the equivalent of a year or 18 months yeah. worth of uh, the running escrow. costs of the club yeah. into an escrow account. And he says he's done that. So that gives the, the fans, I think, a, a little bit more comfort uh, because we've seen far too often over the course of the last few years, somebody comes in, buys a football club for a pound and, and then starts to... <clears throat> Have 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 play with it. It's the quietest word I can describe. It's, it's a very nice Jane Austen way of putting it. Well done. Um, and I'm sure producer guy would like me to point out that the Price of Football Pod does in no way condone a little visit to anyone under any circumstances, unless they owe you money. In which case, there you go. What can you do? Now, Wrexham's new owners possibly, possibly could be even more glamorous than Charlton's new American owner. Yes, so um, on I think it was on Thursday night, um, the members uh, voted to uh, reveal the names of the potential owners, who are Hollywood's Rob McElhenney, and more importantly, according to every single lady friend I know, uh, <laughs> Ryan Reynolds, who mm-hmm. is, is clearly a, a Hollywood bigwig. Um, Wrexham presently, Wrexham AFC. Is presently is a fan-owned club, yeah. Um, but they that they have been run pretty well financially. But it's it's a tough gig, as we as we've said on many an occasion. Um, so that they they are potentially looking for around about a two million pound investment from these two uh two 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 actors. Um, Ryan Reynolds has had a number of successful entrepreneurial uh, adventures uh, in the past. So, so the next step is that Wrexham will hold a special general meeting where um, Rob McElhaney and Ryan Reynolds will put forward their case. So they'll put forward yeah, their vision for the club, how they see it going forwards, how they're going to invest and things of this nature. Um, and I suspect there'll be um, people swooning. Yeah, and as far as I know, Kieran, there isn't a Soho House or a Groucho Club uh, in that part of North Wales. So do we have any hints as to why uh, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney may be in, in, interested in, in Wrexham? I know Oprah Winfrey's best friend uh, had a stake in Swansea City for a time. Do, do we know whether they've just been sort of scouring the internet looking for a, an in to, to British football or whether there is a link? 
Um, I, I think Ryan Reynolds in particular is is keen to uh, get involved in a variety of businesses. He has bought and sold a few uh, as in addition to his, his acting work. Um, one can only presume that, that somebody's pitched to them and, and they've said, we're going to go for it. I mean, there are there are a few pluses. It is quite a romantic story. Uh, yeah. I, I was involved in uh, the Fans United game yes. at Wrexham many years ago, yeah. and the Wrexham fans that day were absolutely amazing. So I'm delighted for them. Um, it, it's not too far away from both Manchester and Liverpool Airport. So if yeah. they do want to come across and see the, the occasional match, you know, it, it is quite accessible. Um, and it's cheap, you know, compared to to buying a club in in the Premier League or the Championship, which is going to cost you tens of millions. Uh, you know, this is a potential two million pounds investment. Perhaps they've seen or they've spoken to David Beckham with regards to what's happened at Salford City, uh, and, and that club's gone from non-league to the EFL. And uh, and and Ryan Reynolds. You know, says um, he, he likes some of that. I mean, I've, I have run one or two nightclubs in North Wales, and, and I also used to run a, a double glazing company in Wrexham. So I do have some associations with it myself. OK, that's another one to add to the list. Double glazing company in Wrexham. OK. Uh, yes, we have asked producer Guy to set up an interview with Ryan Reynolds. Obviously, we're not... We're not holding our breath, especially as producer Guy is currently sulking about last week's interview where we plugged... Uh, the brilliant Berry podcast out of our league so much it temporarily overtook us in the uh, podcast charts. So we, <laughs> we might not be having any interviews for a while. Uh, but if Ryan Reynolds is available and listening, uh, we'll, we'll, he'd be more than happy to talk to one of Wrexham's finest ex-double glazing salesmen. Um, <laughs> ALK Capital are reportedly in talks to buy Burnley. Who they? And don't say they're a Premier League side in Lancashire, please. Right. ALK Capital are a sports investment company. Uh, they're, they're controlled by a guy called Alan Pace. Uh, he used to be the former president of Real Salt Lake. Oh, and okay. he's one of these sort of techie nerds. So so he owns something called AI Scout and Sport Lens. You know, sort of the, 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 uh, the money ball people associated with football and it looks as if he's try, going to now try to put his money where his mouth is and, and to use the technology um, and the data sets which he has to to buy a football club and presumably to use that to uh, identify talent move that talent on and, and make some money on the back of that so so Burnley in my view have probably been the best run club financially in the Premier League over, over the past few seasons they they uh, they operate a, a really tight wage budget. No, there's no big time Charlies there. Everybody's on. You know, my understanding is they're sort of on a, on a range of plus or minus five grand a week compared to each other. Their recruitment historically, if you, if you think you think about the Burnley side, is that they've recruited from um, other you know non Big Fourteen or sorry non Big Six teams yeah. in the Premier League or the Championship. They, they've got a they've got a you know a, a strong ethos on English players or British players who have proven themselves in those divisions. Um, so that they just signed Dale Stevens from us a couple of days ago. Uh, you know that that is about as the personification of of a Burnley player as as could be. Um, so it could be that the, these new owners want to. Uh, perhaps use their technology and, and their software and artificial intelligence to to try to broaden the player base 
with a with an, with the aim of a improving uh, Burnley's league position, which has always been pretty decent, uh, and b making some more profits from player trading. Um, Burnley have got uh, after Man City apparently one of the sort of certainly top two, top three training grounds in the in the Premier League, which must help. Are the current owners looking to sell, or is this a okay looking to find a club to invest in? Well. Burnley presently have got sort of two main shareholders. One's called, I think, Mike Garlick. He owns just under half. Um, and, and he has said he is open to new investment. Since since he acquired the club, he's not put a penny into it uh, because the club runs itself financially. Mm. He, he, they've not had to go to the owners uh, to ask for financial support. But he was saying um, at the start of covid that he was worried that, that Burnley were at some point going to start to run out of cash um, if, if matches didn't return. So it, it could be that he's looking now to uh, move his investment on. I think he'll make a he'll make a decent profit on it and, and let the Americans take over. Mm. Um, if, if they are American investors with this sort of background, I, I don't think they're going to. If Burnley fans are getting excited, they, they don't strike me as the sugar daddy type. Um, you know that they are more of the um, sort of nerds um, trying to to make the club more profitable. And it it, it may be that it just sort of widens the the stream from which they look for players in. So it might be that they expand out of, as you say, British leagues and find bargains elsewhere, which would be exciting in its own way. Now Birmingham City, Kieran, have taken out what you've described as a glorified payday loan. I might have to ask you who that's with because. Uh, if things carry on the way they are, I might have to join them. But is this is this is this something that Birmingham City should be worried about? Um, yes and no. What has happened is that Birmingham sold Che Adams to Southampton a year ago, and that as as we've been sort of mentioning on a few occasions, most big transfer deals these days are based on instalments, and of course they've just sold Jude Bellingham as well. So Southampton still owe £5 million and Dortmund still owe £13 million. And Birmingham weren't due to receive that money until 2021 and 2022. Um, so, so what they've done is that they've, they've got effectively a couple of IOUs sitting in the, in the top drawer of the, of the chief executive's office. And he's gone along to um, Australia's vampire kangaroo bank called Macquarie. And they're so oh. called for that because um, I think it's fair to say that they are ruthless. Yeah, they are. They, they ha- have a, a certain reputation in the city for just getting their stuff done. So what what uh, what Macquarie Bank have done is that they've taken these IOUs from Southampton and Dortmund and they've given they've given Birmingham City cash um, in place of them. Now, that type of thing does take place all the time. Uh, Liverpool have done it with uh, the money due from Barcelona for Philippe Coutinho. Um, Palace, I think, did similar for the second instalment for Aaron Wan-Bissaka. Yeah. And we've seen many clubs do similar with the, the money due in respect of TV payments. So, so it's not unusual um, my my concern is that if a club's doing it in the championship, are they going to be paying quite a, quite a high rate of interest in respect of that transaction? Uh, I, I went through all the pages. You, you know me; I like a bit of small print. There's there's no there's no uh, there's no evidence of the interest rate. But uh, talking to some people in the city, they they did seem to think that that football clubs are seen as 
riskier investments or riskier loans these days, um, and therefore the banks are charging them more interest. Mm, okay, we we hadn't heard of, or I hadn't heard of Macquarie until about seven or eight pods ago. Now that's probably the fourth or fifth mention that we've we've had of them. Does that mean they're sort of looking to take advantage of a, a difficult financial situation for clubs, or, or are the clubs going to them knowing that they will they will do the deal with them if they ask them? Well, um, my, my understanding is that they've now got a dedicated entertainment and sports division. So, oh. so that you, know, you, you might be worth might be worthwhile you just pitching to them, um, yeah. and uh, seeing seeing where it goes from there. Uh, and, and that's based in London. Um, they're, they're fully aware that clubs are in need of cash. Um, they have lots of cash because they're a very successful bank, uh, and it's just really a case of uh, you know wh- whether the fees and the interest rate is is bearable. All right. If anyone from Macquarie is listening, here's my pitch. I've got a bit of equity in the house, but not much work. Uh, let's see if they take. Let's see. If, let's see if they rise to that bait, uh, or or everybody listening could buy the book, which is out on the first of October. That would help. Uh, now, last news story, Kieran. A majority of National League clubs, National League North clubs, to be upon, say they don't want to start this season behind closed doors unless a financial support package is in place. Is a financial support package going to be in place? Um, well, it's not in place yet, that's for sure. Um, we have seen the um, culture minister um, say that he is hoping that something will be sorted this week in terms of support from the Premier League. Now, whether that extends to the National League or it's just going to be for clubs in the EFL, we don't know. Um, it's estimated to be somewhere in the region of 200 to £250 million pounds. Um, My gut reaction, this is not going to be a gift from the Premier League. Uh, There will be strings attached, and and it could be in the form of a guaranteed loan rather than additional money. So um, from from the National League North's perspective, and and I went through the accounts of all the clubs in the National League, 21 out of 24 are losing money pre-COVID. So so they are in a a, a tricky situation to begin with. what, what's the point of playing football uh, in a semi-professional level if nobody's coming to watch it? Yeah. You know, I, I go to non-league matches every Tuesday night these days These days with, with my mates. And you know, at least we are putting money through the turnstiles. We, we are certainly, or certainly my mates are, of course, consuming large quantities of alcohol uh, because you, you can drink um, on the terraces. Um, so, so the clubs are getting some money back. But in the National League North, They've got the worst of both worlds. The players uh, are on contracts, the vast majority of them. Okay, the money's not not great, but it's still money going out. Yeah. If, if you can't play in front of a paying audience, you're just going to lose money hand over fist. There, there is a there's an elephant in the room. If they say we're not going to play football, what's going to happen to the FA Cup? Because the, the qualifying rounds um, are taking place sort of on a week by week basis as we speak. Yeah, I, I'm guessing you went to see Hayward Heath the other night, didn't you? That's right. Yeah, yeah so I've seen uh, Hayward Heath, and I'm going to see Lewis this Tuesday. Yeah, and I'm guessing you said the Lewis crowd was was restricted to 400, but I'm guessing for a club like Lewis, 400 people, 399 of whom are doing the decent thing and buying alcohol, is enough for them? Is it on a, on a weekly basis? Um, yeah, they they'll be reasonably happy with that. Um, because it, it is it is helping to cover their costs, right. uh, but they are below the tier. The they tier, are below the, the national league. Yeah, yeah. 
So, so it, it's a it's a sort of a pinch point in where the uh, the clubs in the national league get the worst of all the worlds. Yeah, they they don't get parachute payments. They don't get solidarity payments from the from the Premier League. They've not got their own TV deal that's worth having, um, but they've still got the potential costs. So, um, it, it's you, you can perfectly understand their position. I think one or two clubs have broken ranks and say, well, well, we're prepared to pay. Um, and I suspect that's because they've got wealthy owners. Yeah, I, I mean, could you, can you put a figure on what a financial support package would be? What would be enough for them to, to be able to start the season? Because I presume, you know, no one's going to give them enough money to to, to complete the season, are they? So, well, they're going to need realistically they're going to need you know two or three hundred grand each to each, right? Okay, each you know because. As well as paying wages, they've got they've got the day to day running costs. I think I think that that's what be needed to uh, last the season. If if they can get going, um, you know, if, if you take a look at the prize money for the the FA Cup, it's it, it's okay. You know, yeah, it, yeah, you, yeah. you're getting a a few, you know, you're getting tens of thousands for winning matches at this stage, and uh, it it keeps the pump going. Okay, uh, right. So Monday is questions day, uh, Kieran. Um, apologies uh, if I skip through some of these questions. I will ask them all, but I may praise uh, some because that news took longer than I thought to talk about. Uh, our first question comes from Stuart Mackenzie McIntyre, uh, which is a grand name. Uh, Stuart says, "I appreciate this will vary from club to club, but as a Gillingham fan, brackets. Oh, how I have mostly suffered over the last fifty years. Yeah, well done." Uh, uh, Stuart's wondering what would be the break-even attendance level needed for a lower league club to survive once fans are allowed back in. That's an interesting question. Okay, so so I, I've, I've taken a look at Gillingham. Um, they're on my naughty step, by the way, because oh. they've not published their 2019 account. So so we don't know how bad their finances are. So I've gone back to the 2018 ones um, where they made a profit of. £180,000, but that was on the back of sell, selling Bradley Dack. So, so if we take out player sales, um, they they made a loss of around about nine hundred and fifty grand that year. Um, their average attendance is 5,500. Um, I, I estimate that they probably need to average 7,300. So it's, it's an extra 1,800 fans wow. um, compared to their existing position. Um, that's because you know clubs in clubs in those divisions they don't have they only get twelve percent of the EFL TV deal um, in League One. Now it, it could be that that break even will actually decrease because I saw some comments from um, uh, Joey Barton uh, mm. over the course of the week uh, in terms of what's happening at Fleetwood, and he was saying that their their top earner who would have perhaps been on three and a half grand a, a week last season is probably going to accept around about half this season because the clubs are in the box seat when it comes to negotiations with so many players out of contract um, and, and so few owners in a position or, or a willingness to, to offer big money. But um, so, so G- Gillingham, you know, they, they, they run reasonably well. You know, they, they don't tend to overstretch themselves at the same time. I understand from comments made by owner Paul Scally, the Dubai-based tax exile, mm. who last charged the club a £311,000 consultancy fee, which mm. is perfectly legal. Mm. Um, 
uh, that HMRC are currently pursuing the club, uh, and and he doesn't seem very very happy about that, which seems a bit of rich from a person who uh, domiciles himself outside of the country to pay less tax. Um, so uh, you know, G- Gillingham should be able to cope with you know if they can get five thousand, six thousand. Uh, assuming that wages have come down, then I think they'll be close to getting to break even. But of course, that's that's still five to six thousand more than they're getting at present. Mm. You know my views, Kieran, on um, not having affection for other clubs. I'm again that sort of thing. But I've I've never been able to hate Gillingham because Brian Moore, of blessed memory, who presented the big match, was a Gillingham fan. But Paul Scally, I'm amazed to hear that he's still part of the club because he, for a couple of seasons, he was very noisy. Gillingham were a very noisy club. And Paul Scully was the main noisemaker. But he had a very good point because he was saying that Gillingham should be able to get 12,000, 14,000 a week. You know, they're, they're not that close to London. Um, there's no other real other clubs around. They, they should be a kind of focal point for a part of the world that hasn't got a lot of football. So they, they should be able to get that, that higher attendance that you talk about, really, if they, a dreadful word, market themselves, shouldn't they? Um, yeah, you know, Gillingham itself isn't a very big town. If, if you take a look at the towns in Kent, you know, the, the town itself is probably around about 90,000. But then you could argue the same about Burnley and, the, and they're capable of That's getting true. crowds of 20,000 in the Premier League. Um, I, I just don't think there's uh, if, if you take a look at the demographics, there's, there's quite a, there's quite a few elderly people there. Um, it just doesn't seem to get people's interest um you know and uh whilst uh whilst i like brian moore's head mainly because he was name checked by half man half biscuit yeah um we we hate gillingham at brighton we absolutely well no no we hate paul scally oh right because well, he uh when when we had to ground share with them um he 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 didn't endear himself to to us us lot he insisted on a two-year deal um and uh it, it, it wasn't pleasant driving 150 miles a round trip to home games to, to yeah. go there. That's for sure. Well, I'll, I'll I'll say to you on behalf of Gillingham fans what I say to Wimbledon and Charlton fans: a bit of gratitude wouldn't come amiss. Thank you very much, um, Gary Parfoot. Uh, I like that name. It sounds like a cheery hobbit. Uh, Gary Parfoot uh, was surprised. He says that the small amount that clubs get from merchandise sales, as mentioned by Kieran on a recent pod, around £7 per £100 of income. Uh, Gary asked an interesting question. He says, why don't more clubs sell their own broader range of merchandise to take more control and make more money? Because apart from the, the sort of top 12 Premier League clubs, you can only really buy shirts in most club shops. And that's, that's quite a good point, actually, because it seems that clubs could make more out of merchandise than they do. Yeah, um, if you if you're running a football club, that's where your focus is. So, do you have any knowledge of the rag and bone markets? You know, do you uh, are you familiar with uh, lead times in terms of design and production of shirts? You know, the chances are you're not. Now, whilst clubs on average are only getting seven pounds out of every one hundred's worth of merchandise sales, remember that's on top of getting a fixed fee. So, if you take ah, a look right. at this deal with Puma. It's not that they're getting 7%. They're getting £2 million up front, let's say, plus £7 in every 100. So that their total take tends to be greater than that. And, and it's a guarantee. We have seen quite a few clubs over the years try to run their own um, own merchandise labels. Um, and I think the politest way of describing it is they've had mixed success. Yeah. Um 
And also, if, if there are delays, you can't get on the phone and start screaming at Puma or Nike or Adidas because it's, it's down to you. So therefore, the fans will find yet another reason to, to give grief to, to the directors. Um, so, yeah, they don't have the expertise. Um, they would lose the fixed fee. They'd lose the guaranteed fee from from the merchandise manufacturers. Um, and what happens if you get relegated? You know, and also all of a sudden your your merchandise sales go you know go through the toilet. Um, you're you're left with getting you know, fifteen percent or twenty percent of very little, as opposed to a guaranteed X million. Right, fine, okay. Um, our next question comes from Tommaso Grant. Now, Tommaso says that you mentioned in a previous pod the possibility of a merger between the Belgian and Dutch leagues. If an English-Scottish league had to happen, how would you make it work and what would be the benefits and pitfalls for Scottish football in particular? Um, I I think in respect of Scottish leagues, which which we're effectively here talking about two clubs, um, that the the main focus will be on, um, it will be a case of who is going to vote for it. So under present Premier League rules, you have to have a two-thirds majority. So that would mean that if uh, if there was going to be some form of joint Premier League and Scottish Premiership, 14 clubs in the Premier League would have to vote for it. Now, would you be advising your chairman to, to vote for it? Would I be advising my chairman to vote for it? Probably not, because you know, ultimately, as we were having a discussion before we went on air, our main focus at the start of the season is trying to identify three clubs who are going to get relegated who aren't Crystal Palace or Brighton. Yeah. And if all of a sudden you've got Rangers and Celtic in the Premier League, well, that's probably going to be two clubs who are getting 50,000 fans a week who sell ridiculous amounts of merchandise yeah. and therefore financially are going to be bigger. So instead of we're looking for you know three out of 14, three out of 12 clubs to go down when we're doing our calculations, if Rangers and Celtic come in, it's now we've got a three out of 10 chance of mm. going down at the start of the season. So so why would Palace or Brighton vote for it? You know, it's not in their interests. If you take a look at the position of the big six clubs at present, Six into four doesn't go when it comes to Champions League places. Well, there is the potential for both Celtic and Rangers to be competitive. So all of a sudden that six into four becomes eight into four. So so why would Liverpool, Manchester City, who I believe have been stuffed 5-1 by Leicester, um, you know, why would those clubs vote for the Scottish clubs to come in. So I can't see them directly coming into the Premier League. If we then drop into the Championship, would EFL clubs vote for it? Well, EFL clubs are trying to get promoted to the Premier League. If Rangers and Celtic and perhaps Aberdeen and Hibs and Hearts come in, well, those are more clubs who are potentially taking those promotion places. So if I was the chairman of a Championship club, I wouldn't vote for it. So there, there is a case for making British football more entertaining um, and having having a broader choice um, as, as far as the game is concerned. But there's no desire for it from the clubs themselves south south of the border. Are you watching the Man City game as we record this pod, Kieran? Uh, no, but something's just pinged through. Um, I've, I've just got a text from Sky Sports come through on my phone. Okay. Well, you, just, can you come and talk to us about the financial implications of Man City losing 5-1 at home to Leicester? Uh, um, Tommaso um, 
if nobody else has noticed, I have, that Kieran didn't actually answer your question except to say it's not going to happen, so why should he worry about this? Um, so if you want to answer that again or ask it again in the previous, next week, we'll, I'll try and tie him down. Our next question comes from Paul Nash. Uh, Paul says, I was struck by what Kieran said on a recent pod. Now, this is the third question we've had, Kieran, who's by somebody who's struck by what you said on a recent pod. Uh, it's nice that so many people are paying attention to previous pods, but it strikes me that we may need to explain things more clearly because we are getting a lot of follow-up questions. Anyhow, uh, according to Paul, we, by which he means you, mentioned that the Fulham owner uh, is writing off money that he'd lent to the club. And Paul says, is this a very rich owner's way to get round FFP? You just keep giving loans and never demand repayment ever, ever. Um, right. Um, this used to be a way of getting around FFP until the EFL challenged it in respect of Queen's Park Rangers in 2014. Uh, so QPR were relegated in 2013. Um, they decided in 2014 that they were going to spend a load of money on players. They were going to retain players on pretty big wage bills. And if that had been the case, they would have lost an absolute fortune. So so what QPR did was the owners wrote off £60 million that was due to them from the club. And in the club accounts, they treated that as income, which, of course, reduced their losses. Um, on the back of that, they got promoted through the playoffs. Bobby Zamora scoring the winning goal against Derby County yeah. um, and um, went back to the Premier League. Um, and eventually they got relegated. Well, they got relegated again, and it, it was a very, very long case. So the case wasn't actually settled until about three years later, um, where QPR were effectively given a nine million pound fine for getting promoted to the Premier League, which gave them one hundred and thirty million pounds of additional income. So. Um, under under the present rules, and and to be fair to both the the Premier League and the EFL, they have tightened up the rules to prevent this uh, this type of activity. Um, but it but it does concern me that uh, you know clubs could get financial support of this type during the season um, in the Championship, um, and then uh, they get promoted. And once they are promoted, um, you can't have points deductions if you're a Championship team in the Premier League. All that you can do is is that you can get fines. Mm. Uh, if you think about the amount of money that you make from from being promoted, the fines and both Leicester and Bournemouth have also paid fines with this regard. That the fines are tiny mm. compared to the benefits of promotion um, and the additional money you generate. Okay, our next question comes from Jeff Setzer. Hello, Jeff. Now, Jeff says, My parents were good friends with some pub owners in Northern England a while back, and if I remember correctly, which I might not, one of these owners told me about 15 years ago that he would have to pay £500 a month to show televised football. What is the current cost, and does it change based on the size of the pub? I could have just straight cut straight to that question, Kieran, but I actually quite like the journey. Basically, um, right. I like the good good friends, Northern England, a while back. I might not remember correctly, probably 15 years ago, 500 quid, I don't know. But anyway, let's cut to the chase. And today, <laughs> how much does it cost to show football? And that's a good question, actually. Does it does it change based on the the, the size of the pub? Um, yeah. The pub I drink in is, is tiny, and I suspect he's probably well, – we're probably watching football on a card, that, a SIM card that is made, made somewhere. But there you go. 
They're, they're all well, they're made somewhere. Well, of course they're made somewhere, but you know what I'm saying. This, this yeah, one was probably, I, I, I can read this one was probably made in yeah. uh, Norwood Junction somewhere, but let's let's carry on. Right. Um, my understanding is that the average cost for a pub these days is in the region of £20,000 a year. A year? To a, a year. A season or a year? Does that make a difference? Well, sorry, a season. season right. In fact, yeah. Um, and and that that's uh, I believe that Sky and BT base what they charge on your rateable value. So therefore, the bigger pubs will be paying more, okay. um, and also I suspect London pubs will be paying more because they tend to have higher rateable values. Um, now that that works out if it's twenty thousand pounds per game, and you, and you look at the number of games that Sky and BT and Amazon, I guess these days have that works out uh, it's it's worked out as around about 180 pounds per game so so if you talk to a publican and you look at his margins he's probably going to have to sell an additional 80 pints right. uh, in order to break even now if it is let, let's be honest if it's manchester united playing liverpool if it's chelsea playing spurs i, I think you know certainly pubs in london uh, well, North London will probably be fine. Yeah. But you, know, you think about yesterday, Burnley versus Southampton. Um, how many people are going to go to to a pub in South London to watch that and, and drink an extra eighty pints? Mm. So um, it, it is a challenge for the pubs. That there have been a few test cases when people have obtained um, satellites, satellite dishes from European countries yeah. and, and got a different satellite card. And it, and it all gets very murky with regards to that. Uh, Sky and BT Sport are trying to protect what they consider to be their intellectual property, as are uh, the Premier League itself. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, 20 grand is, is uh, you know, given given all the struggles that the, the the hospitality sector are having at present is is a real challenge, I would imagine. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon.
Well, also, I know it won't surprise you to know, Kieran, that I uh, have made the acquaintance of one or two pub landlords. Uh, Sky and BT are both quite hot on random checking. You know, occasionally a stranger will come into the pub and ask for a pint of lager or whatever it is, and then look up at the screen. And if that little, there's a little sort of pint glass symbol right in the corner. If that's if that's not there, they will they will be asking where the feed is coming from, and they'll be asking to show proof that they've paid for the thing and i think the fines are quite heavy um the first fine is quite heavy for showing football illegally so it's um it's a potential money maker and also as well i suppose with the with the curfew now as well you know people are you know does it that like you say that game last night at eight o'clock people are sort of reluctant to go out and watch burnley southampton or just to go out and watch burnley southampton and also as well the pub owner if people are in the pub and they're not watching the game, it just happens to be on in the background, they might start to wonder why did they need to have it in the first place. But that's right. And remember, we say £180 per game. Well, if there's three games taking place over the course, or yeah, if you've got one at lunchtime, yeah. one after 3pm and, and one at 7.30, yeah, that's that's 550 quid that you need to make. So... You know, it, it is uh, it, it is a challenge, especially for the, for the smaller pubs. And if you're a tied pub, you're paying more for the beer from the from the brewer. So therefore, that 80 pints could easily become 100 before you break even. And you know, I, I think quite a few publicans are now saying, well, you know, our, our clientele, they come to the pub because they like the atmosphere. They like the other people there. Mm. Um, we, we're going to have to give football a miss. Yeah, we'd like to add it on, but it's simply no longer viable from a financial perspective. Yeah, for overseas listeners, a Tide pub being one that uh, can only buy beer from one particular brewery. Um, but what? So what about you know on the Haymarket, for example? There's a giant, giant sports pub that will basically you can go in there any evening and watch sport from every country, whether it's whether it's football, whether it's NFL, whether it's baseball, whatever. So presumably they're paying all the different sports associations across the world for that, are they? Well, the chances are that they, they've signed uh, the equivalent of, yep, I, I know somebody that has something called an NBC gold card. Oh, well. Which is it, means, is it uh, which, which isn't the same as an American Express credit card. It, it, it allows you to, to watch football through uh, the NBC and they pay £50 a year. So, um, you know, to watch uh, NFL and NBA uh, sports and things of that nature is actually relatively cheap overseas, uh, you know, compared to what the Premier League are charging. Um, the, the, those particular costs actually work out quite low. OK. Uh, Rory Bishop has a quick question, he says, about the organisation of UEFA. I can't imagine that any question about the organisation of UEFA may be that quick, but um, uh, Rory says that currently Andrea Agnelli and Nasser El Khalafi sit on the board of the UEFA Executive Committee as ECA representatives. They are the chair and CEO of Juventus and PSG, respectively. So why have they been chosen? And can you explain to people like me what ECA representatives are? Right. The the ECA is the European Club Association. So it's a bit like a uh, a bit like a trade tradesmen's association, um, and that represents. Uh, it used to represent just the big fourteen. Uh, there used to be something called the G fourteen, um, but it has expanded o- over the number of years, um, and it now represents those clubs which are either qualifying for UEFA competitions or potentially are qualifying for UEFA competitions. Um, 
and, and what happens is that the the ECA um, they they vote on who's going to be their delegates for UEFA, um, and the reason why Agnelli in and El Khalafi are given because they've got very high profiles. It's as simple as that. So they tend right. to get a lot of votes. Okay. Um, it, it's the equivalent of you know somebody in the in the U.S. election trying to to uh, run alongside Trump and Joe Biden. You know, unless they they spend an awful lot of money, nobody will have heard of them because they represent you know the, the runners-up team in Denmark or Albania's third best eleven, um, and they simply just don't have the the, the kudos um, within the market. No, uh, Zach Dawson. Hello, Zach. Uh, Zach says I've constantly been told about Leeds United's potential in the Premier League due to merchandise sales, viewing figures, etc. But how big is that advantage compared to other promoted teams in the past, especially smaller teams? Now, I can't think of many small teams promoted recently, Kieran, apart from Brighton. So let's just stick to the first part of that question. Right. Um, well, Leeds were very, very successful in the the championship, if you take a look at the three sources of income that a football club gets, which is commercial, match day, and broadcasting, um, Leeds had uh, the highest match day income in the championship uh, in in 2019 uh, because uh, yeah they got a decent sized ground and also they 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 charge pretty high prices. Um, so um, you, you multiply your price times volume and. Um, I compared them to Norwich, and they were earning around about seven million pounds more than Norwich um, from uh, from ticket sales. Then you take a look at their commercial income. Um, Leeds have got uh, a a pretty decent worldwide fan base. Yeah, massive. Part of that, they're able to go and sign deals, uh, and, and they get better. They get more money for shirt sponsorship, for kit manufacturing, and so on. So that put them around about ten million pounds ahead of you know, what you might call similar sized clubs in 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 the championship. Uh, so you you put that into the Premier League, um, and realistically, I, I think Leeds have, have got a a start point um, of somewhere between twenty to thirty million pounds wow. uh, ahead of other clubs who have been recently promoted. Well, it's a big advantage. Okay. Uh, well done for not rising to the bait about me calling Brighton a small club. But um, before you, uh, you probably didn't even notice. So before you do, we'll move on to the next question. Um, th- this question, Kieran, you'll like this because you're mentioned in it. Uh, it. Rob Winters says, last week I was doing an ACCA exam, A-double-C-A. Uh, and on a recent pod, that's tonight's theme, on a recent pod, Kieran said he writes some questions for the ACCA exams. So it came as no surprise that my third question was about a football manager's contract. Although, thinking about it, it was a law exam, so it probably wasn't Kieran. Could you explain how the Glazers were able to buy Man United without spending their own money? Now, two things, Rob. Firstly, I love our listeners dearly. I I really do. Kieran, we'd be nothing without you. But please, for the love of God, can we occasionally cut to the chase when we ask a question? That one was like a conversation with my dad. It was, it, I mean, it was a lovely journey through his exams and through your part in them, and then suddenly we're cut into a question about the Glazers. It's like you, you, you have to hold on tight to keep on. Um, secondly, we we did talk about the Glazers a lot when the pod began, but I still haven't fully grasped it, and I'm still asked about. It's a one question, Kieran, that people still ask me all the time: is how the Glazers were able to buy Man United without spending their own money. So I'm happy to revisit this. Perhaps you say, perhaps you could give us. 
a little pricey for, for newer listeners and for people asking vague questions like that last one, which is a great question. And I hope, of course, you do very well in your exams. Um, so, yeah, so just give us a little brief resume of how the Glazers were able to buy a football club using essentially Man United's money to do it. I've been marking those exams since six o'clock this morning. Oh, have you? Um, Hold on a second. Uh, Rob, have you come across Rob's yet? This is a conflict well, of interest. We can't possibly carry on with this, can we? <laughs> no, no no names ever given on exam scripts. That, that's that's why we have integrity in the exam system. Um, right. Let, let's take a look at Manchester United in 2005. It, at that point in time, Manchester United had zero debt. It had money in the bank. And it had a stadium which was worth a lot of money. Mm. So what the Glazers went and did is they came along and they they effectively offered around about seven hundred million pounds to uh, buy buy the buy the club from the existing owners, which which was the stock market. And uh, they said to the stock market, uh, "We're going to get the cash, and what we're going to do is we're going to mortgage Manchester United." So it's got no debt at present. We're going to go to a load of banks and say, well, there's, you know, it's, it's got the stadium. It's got the training facilities. It's got all of these players. We're going to buy the business. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to borrow up to the hilt um, and, and effectively secure it. So it's a bit like you or I going, going to a house. We've got no money ourselves and we buy the house with a 100 percent mortgage. Right. So that, that's what uh, the Glazers did, except it was a 100% mortgage, which was interest only. So since uh, since 2005, um, in, instead of – and they have spent a lot of money on players and wages, I have to be honest. Mm. But since uh, 2005, all they've done every year is that instead of repaying any of the loans, they've simply paid interest on the loans and they've kicked the, the repayment of the capital – down the road a bit. So they've paid in total £826 million in interest. Um, so it, it's it's the same as uh, a 100% mortgage. It's as simple as that. Right. Um, I distinctly remember back in the first few weeks of this pod, me saying to you several times, uh, with my tongue stuck between my teeth like a five-year-old trying to keep information in my head, Explain to me that bit about the stockbroker, the stock market owned the club, and you did explain to me. I never. So why? I mean, how did the sale come about? Did, did the people, the stock market owned the club? You say, but there were owners of Man United at the time, were they not? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so what happens was Manchester United shares were traded on the stock exchange. And, let, and let's say that if you wanted to buy one share in Manchester United, it would have cost you three hundred pence. What the Glazers did is they said, we're going to offer everybody, not 300 pence, which is the, the market price. We're going to offer everybody 450. Right. And everybody said, well, that sounds like a really good deal. So everybody went and sold their shares to the Glazers. Now, every, everybody mainly being here, um, hedge funds, insurance companies, pension funds, people like that. Um, and they thought, well, yeah, we, we bought the shares for, for less than 300. We've now been offered 450. It's a good deal. There were a few shareholders who uh, said, well, we don't fancy this. We, we don't want a bunch of Americans owning the club. Um, and they refused to sell. 
But under stock market rules, once you buy, once you own more than 90% of the shares in a listed company, a company whose shares are traded on the stock exchange, you can force the remaining shareholders to sell you their shares for the same price that you've you've just bid uh, to take over the company. Right. So the Glazers didn't have the money to buy the shares until they bought the shares and then they had the money to buy them. Or, or rather, what they did, they went to a bank and said, will you lend us the money? If this ah, deal yes. goes through, right. okay. you'll lend us the money, which we'll then give to the existing shareholders. And if we fail to pay interest on the loans, and, and that interest, I think it peaked at £111 million pounds one year. Wow. Yeah, they, they were paying interest at uh, yeah, between 14 and 16% on these loans. Absolutely horrendous rates, credit card rates. Uh, because the the the, the uh, debt markets, the lending markets, they were a bit twitchy, um, but they decided, well, if we are going to lend to you, it's going to come at a, a significant price. And this, I mean, this is all standard business practice, presumably. They, they could have targeted Real Madrid or QPR or any other club, or was Man United specifically? As, was that the club they always wanted? Well, the the, the advantage of of going for a club such as Manchester United is because if you are what's referred to as a quoted company, i.e. your shares are traded on the stock exchange, you tend to have thousands, if not tens of thousands of individual shareholders, and you can sort of pick them off one by one. Whereas if you you wanted to go and buy Crystal Palace from Steve Parrish, um, if he said no, you're stuffed, aren't you? you? You can't go to other shareholders and say, well, you know, I'm still offering you a good amount. And then they come round and you manage to sort of pick them off one by one. Yeah, he he already has said no. I drunkenly offered him 25 quid a couple of years ago, but uh, that was another story. Um, Anthony Wood, uh, our penultimate question, and it's nice and short. Thank you, Anthony. There's no backstory. There's no characters involved in this it's a lovely short Anthony Woodson is there a way of finding out how a club is doing in relation to FFP Uh, I'm a Forest fan and I keep hearing that they are hard pressed but I can't find out how hard pressed right well it's good that we've got Wood and Forest in the same question nice I hadn't noticed that well done thank you thank you yeah very good um (laughs) right I'm annoyed I didn't notice that now but I would have made a terrible pun but it's great um, Anthony, if you want to to find out uh, and calculate uh, Forrest's FFP situation, what you need to do is to go to the company's house website, um, download the accounts for the last three years, and you you go to the profit and loss account. You start with profit before tax, and then you can make adjustments for infrastructure spending, women's football, community schemes, academy schemes and promotion bonuses. But but given Forest's start to the season uh, this year, I don't think that's going to be an issue for that for, for Forest, sadly. And, and I'm I'm a big fan of Forest as, yeah, as, as, as you know, Kevin, I, I like many teams, mainly yeah. because of the Brian Clough connection. Mm-hmm. Um so um, if, if you do that, you can you can then literally put the numbers into a spreadsheet. Now, I've gone and done that for you, Anthony. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, it, I'm sure Anthony was as aghast as I was when you go. It's, it's quite simple. All you do is go to company's house. You do this. You get a spreadsheet. Then you hire a specialist chartered accountant. But yeah, you've done it for him. That's good. I've done it for him, um, and over the period uh, 2017 to 2019, financial fair play is calculated over a three-year period, and you're allowed to lose £39 million uh, based on my calculations, 
Uh, Forest lost 30 million during that period. So they still had a bit of wiggle room, but uh, things were things were getting worse year by year, which possibly explains why they've been a bit cautious um, in 2019-20. In um, and, and that might explain why they are having a poor start to the season, mm. sadly for them. So you underestimate yourself, Kieran, really, because it's it's all about the interpretation. It's it's as you say, it's relatively easily easily easy to go to a company's house and log on and do these things, but then it's it's interpreting the figures. It's um, you know, working out how it works, how it relates to FFPs. Very difficult for most of us, Kieran, which is why we're doing this this pod. So don't be telling people it's easy because they'll all be doing it and then they won't bother tuning in. Um, well, they, they, Anthony's probably got a personality. Uh, my friend Julie, who uh, who I've been going to football with for over forty years, mm. she says I've, I've not changed much. When she first met me, she described me as a geeky virgin, and I've not changed much since then, except I'm probably more geekier. So, you know, not uh, there's it, only a, a certain type of person that would ever bother to, to waste hundreds, if not thousands, of hours doing this type of nonsense. Yeah, well, let's not own up to you being a virgin, Kieran, because a lot of your stories are going to be thrown out of the water if you still reckon that bit's true. Uh, also, Julie's a new name, which I'll add, add to the uh, uh, <laughs> Double Glazing Company. So hang on, Double Glazing Company, Julie, 40 years. There we go. I'm going to have a long conversation with the Baroness when all this is over. Um <laughs> Uh, I, I like the sound of Julie. Hello, Julie. How is Julie's a Brighton fan, is she? She is. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, uh, she's 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 very very keen. She's a Brighton fan living in Crewe, which uh, you don't you don't see that, that that those words in the same sentence too often. Yeah, well, you, uh, I wouldn't want to live in Brighton, so that's that's about as far. Oh, actually, I live a lot closer to Brighton than Crewe, so let, let's <laughs> let's back out of that particular cul-de-sac. Um, our last question comes from Jerry Pruitt. Uh, uh, I've got no idea why guys included this question because it's, <laughs> such a, it's such an interesting off-the-wall one. But Jerry Pruitt said, what's the music at the start of the show? Um, a, I didn't know we had music, Kieran, to be honest, because I've, I've never actually listened to the pod. Uh, Jerry says, I know it's unfootball-related, but it's been bugging me for ages. Every time I hear the music as the podcast fires up, I love the anticipation of what's in store. Well, Jerry, we asked producer Guy... And this is what he said, and I quote, The music is a song called King Street Crawl by my old band, Dojo Cuts. I'm on bass. Yeah, it doesn't surprise you that guy's a bass player, does it? Half and half. I'm surprised he can play the bass for his half and half scarf draping over his fingers. I bet he's a level 42 type bass player as well, but he holds it really high up his chest, not like Peter Hook, proper cool bass player. Uh, anyway, um, I'd lost interest by this time in producer Guy's response, but he goes on to say it was one of the first songs we recorded and it was never released. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it said, and it says here, the other bands, the other members of the band were very happy for us to use it on the podcast. I bet they were. And you can find Dojo Cuts on all the usual music platforms. Uh, and I know why he said music platforms, Kieran, because he immediately knew that if he just said usual platforms, we would both say, I never heard it on Pornhub. Um, and secondly, he's going to make a fortune out of royalties now, isn't he? All the people listening to this now, it's not its not enough that last week we sent out of our league, Berry's podcast, above us in the charts. Guys suddenly going to be rolling in money from people going, I must i must download King Street Crawl by Dojo Cuts. That sounds like a, that sounds like a wonderful piece of music. 
Is indeed. It, is it any good? I've not, have you heard it? Yeah, it is. It, it's, oh, yeah. it's very funky. Very funky indeed. And, and you can certainly see a bit of level 42 in it. Oh, well, yeah, it's, it's uh, jazz and funk I disapprove of. Does it sit nicely with the uh, Financial Times intro? Yes, yes. Our our very kind sponsors, the Financial Times. If you uh, remember, you can get the Financial Times at a very reasonable price. I think it's is it only £1 if you go to ft.com forward slash price of football. Yeah. So that's 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 my non-committal sound. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, um, yes. I, I, th- I think we I think we need to find a new sponsor, Kevin. Something yeah. a bit more left field. Yeah, well, that, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Let's uh, let's keep a lookout for something a bit uh, left field and possibly uh, lower belt. Uh, <laughs> qu- questions at priceoffootball.com. That's where you need to send your questions to us if you want us to answer anything. Uh, on next Monday's Questions Pod. We'll be back with you on Thursday, of course, with our news pod. But in the meantime, Kieran will have a message. Well, first of all, folks, thanks again for all your questions and also your reviews on the Apple Podcast app. We produce a guy reads them. Um, he never tells us what they what they <laughs> say, but uh, we've, we've not been sued yet, so so I presume it's okay. Um, it, it genuinely makes a difference uh, in terms of uh trying to do the business side of the podcast and and i can put my hand on my heart and say i've not made a penny out of this yet so i'm not actually particularly asked about that side of things um but uh you know it it, it, it's good it's uh it's good to be in the charts um and, and it does give the show a bit of credibility when we're trying to negotiate with with guests and remember we have had you know the head of the spfl we've had club owners we've had managers we've had ex players um and if uh, if they've heard of the podcast and i think most most players and ex players apparently have only heard of it because of a whatsapp uh message which has gone round for for a particular excerpt from one of the shows which i can't remember the exact details but uh we, we do appreciate your feedback if you could give us five stars that would be fantastic and and apart from that look after yourselves look after your loved ones and stay safe yeah, you know who will be in the charts next week, don't you? Dojo Cuts. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Take that, take that, Taylor Swift. <laughs> the price of football. I'm for the